Psalm 127. And let me just say that if you find the material helpful uh, either this morning or this evening or both, let me encourage you to uh, purchase the CDs, go on our website and get the link. Uh, those are usually up by Tuesday, and you can send the audio or the video. Um, you may not agree 100% with all of my parenting philosophies, but I got to tell you, thank you, Pastor Dave, whatever, whatever system I'm giving out, it sure works better than what our broken world is doing. And uh, a lot of people are totally lost when it comes to rearing and raising children. They have no concept of how to do that. And uh, we, uh, we, we get to the place where we're just repeating the habits of uh, the way we were raised and we do what we're familiar with. And whether it works or not, that's all we know to do, so we just do it. And we need a fresh, uh, a fresh take on parenting that is in line with the Scripture. So let me encourage you to, uh, to take uh, the sermons that were preached uh, both this morning and the one I'm getting ready to preach now and share that uh, with those uh, in your lives that uh, have children. And if they have a wise spirit about them, they will welcome the material into their homes. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word tonight. And we'll look at the entire psalm here, Psalm 127. The Bible says, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Lo, children are an inheritance of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows in the hands of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. We'll look tonight at Parenting 102. Let's pray. Lord, tonight help us as we look in your word. Help us to understand it and press it on our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Anytime I read a psalm or study a psalm, I like to try to get the history of the psalm. When you get the historical context of who wrote it and what, where they were and what they were going through, it just takes the psalm to a whole nother level. Uh, we did that with Psalm 4 a few weeks ago. Remember we talked about what to do in distresses. Uh, David laid out for us a formula there. David also authored the 127th psalm and he wrote it to his son Solomon. I want you to picture King David sitting down at his kingly desk there in his palace. At this point in his life, he is now an old man. He is nearing the end of his reign and the end of his life. And he is reflecting back over all of the different things that he's done over his victories and his defeats, his successes and his losses. And as he looks back over all of the uh, different uh, areas of his life, and he reflects on them individually, he comes to his parental years. He looks back and he thinks about Amnon. How that Amnon was raised and had no self-control. A man who just followed the most wicked of impulses. He thinks about how Amnon took advantage of his, his half-sister. 
He thinks of Tamar, who no doubt it, in her childhood years was the apple of his eye, his little girl. How that, how that Tamar had been violated in such an awful, terrible way, and how her life probably went into a tailspin after that. He thinks about Absalom, Tamar's brother, who took up Tamar's vengeance and killed Amnon and then, and then fled to his grandparents' house in another country only to come back and lead a mutiny and end up dying in battle against his own father. He looks at these children and he reflects back and remembers how that he was not a very good father to these children. He did not protect Tamar. He did not raise Amnon the right way, and he allowed the sin between Amnon to Tamar, or rather Amnon toward Tamar, to corrupt Absalom and ruin his son Absalom. And then he said, then he looks at Solomon. Then Solomon. What a contrast between the way he raised the first set of children and the way he raised Solomon. Solomon, uh, upon uh, becoming an adult, would be a young man who had a very, very tender heart toward God. Would be a young man that loved God deeply and cared for God greatly because David had set aside the bad habits of a bad parent and had, at least towards Solomon, at least with one of his children, had tried his best to do it the right way. Then the Holy Spirit, with this thought process in mind, had him write these verses down. Verse 1, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh, but in vain. In David's spirit, he thinks, yes, Holy Spirit, what you're having me pinned down, this is true. I tried parenting my way. I, I built my own parental house the first time around. And what happened? I thought I had it all figured out. I thought I knew. And then the rainstorm of, uh, 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 of sin came and the, the winds of temptation shattered the structure and killed or damaged all of my children. I thought I knew how to build a house. I thought I had all the parenting skills down. I thought for sure I knew what I was doing. I was rich. I was powerful. I was king. I had it all down. I knew what I was doing. And then sin destroyed my children. Then he thinks of the young man Solomon. God had built that parental house. God had kept or guarded or protected the parental city around Solomon. David is offering profound parental counsel here. What he is saying is, you can build your home on your own wisdom and experiences, or you can build your home on the Bible and its truths. And tonight, let me just encourage everyone here, let God be the master builder of your home. Let God do it. Don't rely on what you know. Don't rely on your past experiences. Don't rely on how you were raised, whether you thought it worked or not. Scrap all that and say, God, I want you to build the house because I don't want this to be in vain. Prior to his presidency, Woodrow Wilson was the president of Princeton University. He spoke these words to a parent's group. This is, this is great. Listen to this. 
He said, I get many letters from you parents about your children. You want to know why we people up here in Princeton can't make more out of them and do more for them. Let me tell you the reason we can't. It may shock you just a little, but I'm not trying to be rude. The reason is that they are your sons reared in your homes, blood of your blood, bone of your bone. They have absorbed the ideals of your homes You have formed and fashioned them. They are your sons in those malleable, moldable years of their lives. You have forever left your imprint upon them. Ouch. Quit throwing stones at the college. It's your fault. It's your fault. My father's been in Christian school administration for 30 years. I can't tell you how many parents have stormed out of his office when their children rebelled and said, "Uh, we put all this money and tuition toward the school, and we expect more out of the school. Our children are behaving so poorly. And my father's had to look back across the desk at many of parents, and and as kindly as he could say it, uh, I'll strip the kindness away and just put it plain, they're your kids, not mine. They're behaving the way you've raised them. They're misbehaving in spite of you. In spite of us, not because of us. Again, he's much nicer about it than that. Um, I believe that we must make a profound, a deep impact on the lives of our children for God. We must take the few precious years that we have our children and we have our grandchildren. We must use it to fire them off into the world so that we can make a huge impact for God. Arrows of light in a dark world. Tonight we're going to look at four more impactful biblical teachings that will help us be parents that are biblical. Let me encourage you to take notes tonight. Number one, notice, we must find balance. We must find balance. Turn it over uh, with me. To um, uh, well, rather first look back at verse number one there of uh, Psalm 127. Notice there it says, "Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain." Now turn over to Proverbs chapter 11 and verse number one. Proverbs 11 and verse number one. We're going to look at this verse twice while within this point. So when you get there, hold your spot. The Bible says, a false balance. I'll tell you what, let's read this verse out loud together. Everybody find it? Here we go. A false balance is abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. So this verse is teaching that we must find balance in every area of our life. Balance. Boy, what an elusive concept. Um, Picture a guy on a tightrope. You ever seen someone walk across the Grand Canyon or between a couple of of, uh, skyscrapers um, with the wind blowing? He's got that gigantic pole and he's watching every step, right? And there's no such thing as perfect balance, especially when you're doing something like that. It's constant adjustments, a little bit to the left, a little bit to the right, and uh, uh, sometimes they do that with no net below them. I don't know how they do that. Um, 
Now, I want you to think of that concept. If you lose your balance, you're going to crash and die. How many of you are old enough to remember Evil Knievel? I saw reruns. I'm not trying to rub that in or anything. Okay, a little bit, a little bit. Um, that, that balance is so important. Now, I'm going to give you a couple things here. We're going to come back in a moment and talk about balance. There are two components to parenting. Letter A, notice rules. Rules. All the kids in here just love the rules. Right? Um, let, me, let me give you uh, something here that I found super, super fascinating. Some of you, this might be the only thing some of you get out of service tonight. You'll be able to impress somebody with your Bible knowledge after this. In the first five books of the Bible, there are 613 rules. Just the first five books. Did you know that there are exactly 613 bones in the human body? Isn't that neat? One rule for every bone. I don't know that that's just a coincidence or maybe that's just buried in the number game that God likes to play with the Bible. Uh, But 613 rules. You think God likes rules? A little bit? Now, our rebellious heart, they don't like rules. In fact, we try to get out from underneath rules. But rules come from God. Now, I want you to to logic with me here. Um, Rules are necessary to civility. If there are no rules, you can't have a civil group of people. How many here have ever been in charge of a school classroom? Would you raise your hand? My hand's up. You want to try to do that with no rules? Boy, I've seen teachers that uh, say, you know what, I'm just your friend. There are no rules. It turns into chaos. I had a teacher by the name of Mrs. Drake. Mrs. Drake had no clue what she was doing. She had gone, I felt bad for her. My my ninth grade year, uh, she was the science and math teacher. She knew her stuff, she was smart, but the kids could just get under her skin and get her so angry. After one year of teaching, she quit. And uh, we, we ran into her the next year, and she said, I have never been happier in my life to be out of the classroom. She had no idea what she was doing with the structure of rules. And I've said this before. I'll say it here again. I, there is a special place in heaven for you teachers. I, and I don't say that uh, being sarcastic. I mean that. God bless you. You, you know how to not only enforce the rules, but to transfer that knowledge. And, and, and you're working with little minds. Praise the Lord for you. But without rules, there is no civility. Where there are no rules and the enforcement of those rules, uh, you find total chaos. Total chaos. You can have all the rules you want, but if you're not enforcing the rules, it doesn't matter. Now, children find safety. Please hear this. Children find safety inside of rules. They know where their boundaries are and they know the consequences if they step outside of them. If you accurately enforce those rules and you do it consistently the first time, every time, the children will test the boundaries. They'll experience the sting of testing the boundaries. And then once they know the sting is consistent, they live inside the rules and they find great Comfort in knowing that there are rules there and that the rules are consistent. They know where the lines are. Now, uh, structured sports are only structured because of the rules that are around them. How would basketball work if there were no rules? 
no out-of-bounds, no double-dribble, no walks, no point totals for uh, the ball going through the basket. How about this? No fouls called. I've played some street ball where no fouls were called. No blood, no foul, they'd say. Well, that's rough, right? It turns more into football than basketball. Without rules, you can't have a structured sports. How about baseball? Brother Mark, no strike zone. How would that work? It's a ball. No, it's a strike. Well, there is no such thing. Well, I, I can throw it. You wouldn't even be able to play the game. Without rules, you can't have structured sports. There is no civility. Rules are necessary. Rules bring structure. However, however, please write this down if you're taking notes. A rule that is not enforced is no rule at all. A rule that is not enforced is no rule at all. I'll give you an example that we're all very familiar with. The speed limit on the Merritt Parkway. I have heard of two different people who have been pulled over by the police on the Merritt Parkway for going 55. They were told by the police officer, drive with the flow of traffic. You're, you're, you're going to cause an accident. And they said, but I'm driving the speed limit. Don't worry about the speed limit. Actually, I think I was told when I understood it is they didn't want to say, don't worry, the speed limit. They just kept saying, just, just, just drive with the flow of traffic. I don't know why it's 55. I know for legality reasons it probably has to be. Uh, how, I'm not going to ask that. Uh, I was going to say, how many here actually drive 55? But then I, you make the rest of us look bad, so I'm not even going to ask that. Um, a rule that's not enforced is no rule at all. Look, I, I'll go with the flow of traffic, and if I'm late, I'll push a little bit. But I see these people going 85 and 90 down the Merritt Parkway. And you know what? I don't really see too many people get pulled over because there is really no rule. There's really no rule there. Look, you can tell your children the rules so you're blue in the face. If you're not going to enforce them, a rule not enforced is no rule at all. A home with no rules is a home with no structure. A home with rules that are not enforced is a home of frustrated children and Frustrated parents. I'm thinking of a lady, I'll just give her first name in, a, in another ministry to another place named Martha. Martha had two little uh, children. The oldest uh, her, uh, boy's name was Jerry. And uh, the mother uh, told Angela and I, she said, I love my children. She was a single mom. I hate coming home from work at night. Hate it. It is, it is war every time I walk in the door. Martha's problem was that she had rules, but she was no good at enforcing the rules. Letter B, notice relationship. Relationship. You need rules and you need relationship. Look at verse, or rather, let me read for you Ephesians 6, 4. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but, but, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We are commanded, that's a rule, to bring up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. How are we to do this if we don't have any, uh, if, if we, if we don't have and maintain a relationship with our children? How can you, uh, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord if there isn't a solid relationship there? We must, please hear this, we must get the hearts of our children at a very young age and we get their heart by spending time with them. Time with them. You've got to spend time with your kids to get their heart, and then you've got to continue. 
invest that time to keep that heart. You, you do this by engaging them, by enjoying family outings, by taking your children with you to the store. Look, if your children are saying, Dad, can I go to the store at 6? And you say no because you just want to go be by yourself. At 16, when you can't get them to open up and talk to you, don't you be surprised. They don't know how. You shut them out at 6, they're shutting you out at 16. If they want to go to the store with you, I understand there might be some exceptions to this or times you need to be by yourself. But where you can, take your children with you and talk to them and communicate with them and, and ask them what's going on in their life and keep that uh, keep the, the, uh, the avenues of communication open and flowing. How do you uh, have a relationship with your children? Well, you do that by buying them an ice cream. And all the children said, Amen. You do this by snuggling with them on the couch. You do this by laughing together in the good times and crying together in the hard times. How do you have a relationship with your children? By, you do this by going to church together. Can I tell you the best quality time I've ever spent as a boy with my family or as a husband and a dad is at church? There's something special about sitting on the pew with your family and growing underneath the teaching and preaching of God's Word. It betters your marriage. It betters your parenting skills. It puts all of you on the same spiritual page. Go to church together. But the key here, again, number one, uh, point number one, we must find balance. Balance. Now, rules are good and relationship is good, but but they need each other in order to function. All right? Let me give you uh, some uh, formulas here. All right? I believe these will be on the screen one at a time here. Rules minus relationship equals rebellion. How many of you in here have ever served in the military? Would you raise your hand? All right. The prototypical uh, rules minus relationship equals rebellion guy is a drill instructor type. He comes in the door from work and the children all line up and, and face a uniform inspection. In the morning, dad goes in the bedroom at 6.30 a.m. and checks to see if he can bounce a quarter off the bed. <laughs> um. Rules, 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 rules. You do what I say, maggot! Alright, I'm, I'm being a little extreme, but you get the idea here. Some parents are all rules. And let me tell you something. You can yell and scream at your kids so you're blue in the face. If there's no relationship there, boy, those rules are going to run thin pretty quick. I hesitate to say this with my kids sitting in the auditorium, but I'm going to go ahead and say it anyway. If I ever uh, tell my kids to do something and I get even a twinge of rebellion from them, whether that's surfaces in body language or a tone, um, I think at this point in their life they're not going to blatantly be rebellious with their words, but that day may come, I pray not. If I even get a twinge of rebellion, a twinge of attitude, immediately I squelch it. I deal with it. And I deal with it tough. But then I always ask myself this question. Have I been spending enough time with my kids? Am I more rules than relationship? Is that getting out of balance? And oftentimes what I find when my children are beginning to buck against my rules 
is that I've been heavy on the rules. And I have not had enough relationship. What I'll do is with that child, after I deal with it, a few days later, I'll take him out and do something with him. Now, you guys don't go acting rebellious so daddy will take you out. Um, I'll be on to you, all right? Rules minus relationship. Listen, you've got to keep those two in balance. However, the other is true, and I think this one probably applies more to parents today. Throw the next one up there. Relationship minus rules equals rebellion. Mom and Dad, can I tell you something? It's okay to have a friendly relationship with your kids, but God did not create you to be their friend. He created you to be their parent. And sometimes, sometimes that means that you've got to put your foot down on something and be firm, even if they don't like it. That means that when they do test the boundaries, uh, it's got to sting when they test the boundaries. And they may not like you, but that's okay. I can't remember which one of them it was, but one of my kids told me they were really little. They looked at me and they said, Daddy, I just don't like you right now. And I looked at him and said, I don't care. You're not supposed to like me. You're supposed to obey me. So while you're not liking me, go obey me. We had a couple over at our house. This was a high school friend of mine, Matt and Christy. They had their, uh, I think Matthew is three months old, four months old. And you ever have people over at your house and they just don't know when it's time to leave? And you're like, it's 11.30. Go home. But you're, not, you know, you're trying not to be rude. And, and Angela and I work to be hospitable. And so, you know, um, Matthew, it was his time, time to go to bed. So Angela takes him back in the bedroom there and, and she gets him asleep. Well, they have like a little, little, a little two-year-old brat. And, and they said to their two-year-old girl, would you like to sit down on the couch? Please, would you sit down on the couch? And she said, no! And she took off running around the house. Oh, she just doesn't know how to listen. And I go back to my quote this morning about uh, parents obeying their children. And uh, it was everything I could do to contain myself. Well, Angela gets Matthew to sleep, and he, he was, I think, uh, uh, teething or something, and a little bit tougher to get to sleep that night. Well, she goes running in his room, la, 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 wakes him back up. And I'm like, all right, that's it, leave. <laughs> get out of here. Uh, no, I was a little nicer to him than that, a little. But um, children, children, parents that just want to be their children's friends. They don't like the rules. They don't like the enforcement of the rules. We talked this morning about a, a system of punishment and knowing how to spank your children. Doing it in a way that's careful, yet practical, and spiritual. We talked about that at length. we got moms and dads here tonight that are part of this church, maybe not here, but part of this church as well. They understand the concept, but they don't know how to be firm with their kids. Let me just give you maybe the most practical piece of parental advice I can give you. And that is that when you're correcting a small child, if you don't have their eyes, you don't have that child. You can tell that child, go clean up your room. If they're not looking at you, they're not going to listen. One thing I love about my wife, oh, I love this about her. She's going to hate me for saying this. I'm going to say it anyway. I love about my wife is she would say, look at me in my eyes. Look at me in my eyes. You will do what I'm telling you to do. And once you have their eyes, you have their attention. You don't have their eyes, 
you don't have their attention. It comes down to two words with uh, parenting little ones. And those two words is a gentle firmness, a gentle firmness. You say, Pastor, if I have to err on the side of gentle or firmness, which side should I err on? You should err on firmness. You must be firm and you must have a low tolerance for disobedience. There's this concept out there. Well, I'm just being patient with my little child. No, no, no. You're not being patient with your child. You're giving them room to sin. We should never be patient towards sin. You tell them to do something, you should have a very, very low tolerance for disobedience. You stand firm on what you've told them to do. And and, and don't get emotional about it, but you punish them if they don't listen. Relationship minus rules. We're going to let our children make their own decisions. I'm thinking of a a high school boy that tried to take his life in a ministry we were in back in Mississippi. And he was a very popular young man in the school, star of the football team, and dated a cheerleader in the school. My father went running into his hospital room there and, and said to him, well, what are you doing? And he said, my parents don't love me. And my dad said, what do you mean your parents don't love you? They pay your, your tuition and they show up at your sports games. They seem like they care about you. He said, no, you don't understand. My parents will have any rules on me. They let me come and go as I please. And, and, and uh, they don't check and see what time I'm going to come home. In fact, if I don't even come home at night, they don't even ask me a single question. He said, my parents don't love me. What he was saying is my parents want to be my friend. They don't want to enforce any rules. And this, my friend, is an abomination of the Lord because it's parenting that's out of balance. However, however, throw the next one for me. Rules plus relationship equals compliance. Now, here's the point I want to drive home right here. To the depth of relationship you have, to that same depth, you can enforce the rules. Little relationship, little enforcement of rules. Deep relationship, boy, you can get really, really, really tight on the rules and not have any pushback from your kids. The deeper the relationship, the more you can expect out of them with those rules. Some parents have a great relationship with their children. They're not using that, those deposits to enforce the rules. And some parents uh, are really stringent on the rules, but there's not much relationship there. And I'm saying to you that have a great, deep relationship with your children. Do things with them. Spend time with them. But then enforce those rules. Uh, deeply, and what you'll find are children that are compliant and obedient and happy within your home. I must hasten, number two, we must establish order. We must establish order. Back in Psalm 127, verse 1, the Bible says, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh, but in vain. God is to build our homes. If God is the master builder of our home, then we can assume that the home will be built with great order to it. 1 Corinthians 14.33 For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. Does that word peace define the structure of your home or confusion? 1 Corinthians 14.40 Let all things be done decently and in order. Let me give you quickly an A, B, and a C. Notice letter A, our roles. Our roles. A biblical home has God as the ultimate authority. Biblical home has God as the ultimate authority. Uh, and, and everyone in the home is submissive to God. If the Bible says to do something, then we're going to do it. And we're not going to ask any questions about it. 
If the Bible says to do something and we're not real sure uh, exactly what it means, we're going to err on the side of caution. So God is the ultimate authority. After God comes the husband. Again, the husband is the leader of the home. He is the servant leader of the home. And But if there is a big decision to be make, made, uh, the husband consults with his wife, maybe gets some counsel from uh, some godly people in his life, and then ultimately it is the husband's decision. After that comes the wife. And then uh, uh, after the wife comes other partners in child rearing. If you put your children, have your children in school, then that school, the teacher of that school, the administrator of that school, the staff of that school, you have partnered with them in raising your children. They are on the team to get your children to do right. The children's pastor, the youth pastor, the Sunday school teachers, the pastor of the church, they are on your team trying to help you raise your children right. And then somewhere below there, we find the children. We find the children. So God, husband, wife, other partners in child rearing, and then children. Okay, now, let me just say this right here. Never, 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 never side with your children, a child again. Against your spouse. Never. Never, ever, 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 ever choose your child's side against your spouse. At least not in front of that child. If you feel as though your spouse is in the wrong in correcting that child, the child should never know about that. You stand next to your wife or your husband and you defend them to that child. And then in private, if you feel that a correction needs to be made, you take that correction to them in private. And then you let the spouse, if they went too far, go back on their own and fix that with the child. You know why? Because you two are on a team. You know what little kids are great at? Little kids are great at divide and conquer. They want to get... Dad on my side against mom, but more often they want to get mom on my side against dad. Now it's me and mom against dad. No, 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 no. It's it's always husband and wife together. And if the child is going to act sinful and rebellious, it's mom and dad together. And if the child wants to draw a line and say, choose sides, you say, I choose the side of my spouse. That's good preaching, whether you've got a two year old or a 22 year old. And let me just take this a step farther. You should never publicly side with your child against a parenting authority. Let me just speak on behalf of the teachers here. Uh, what I, I feel so bad for our teachers today because uh, the child, if, if there is a conflict between the child and the student with the way our culture goes. And look, I get there's uh, cases this isn't uh, true, but with the way our culture goes, generally the parent sides with the child against the teacher. And I feel so bad for our teachers. That wasn't the case 40, 50 years ago. If you got a spanking at school, you got another one at home. Well, that's not the case anymore. If you get a spanking at school, boy, we're calling the police. I can remember times where authority mistreated me growing up. One case in particular, they mistreated me right in front of my parents. And I complained, I was a seventh grader, complained about it really heavy on the way home. And my dad got really quiet. And after a moment, he said, Richard, what you're going to find in life is that life isn't fair. You need to deal with it now and not wait till you become an adult. By the way, he was her boss. And she had lit me up with demerits. That's a Christian school thing. 
My dad let those stand. He did not take them off. You say, well, pastor, what should I do if, 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 uh, if authority is mistreating my child? Well, let me just give you this little phrase. Mediate, don't meddle. Mediate, don't meddle. Now, for all I know, my dad sat down with that teacher, that school teacher, and, and, and as a father, gave, gave her his opinion on how she thought he, she should have handled it. But if he did, I didn't find out about it. I didn't know about it. You know why? He was mediating, but he wasn't meddling. Letter B, notice our routines. Our routines. Children find great safety in an established routine. Generally speaking, you should uh, uh, attempt to get up about the same time every day, go to bed about the same time every day, uh, have the same schedule uh, uh, within uh, the routine of your day. Children find great safety in an established routine. And by the way, all adults really find great safety, great uh, security inside of an established routine. Uh, Let me also uh, say this here. Children find safety in an orderly house. In an orderly house. You say, Pastor... We live in our house. It's not a museum. Uh, And listen, I understand that. I appreciate that. And if you have a house that's well used and couches that are jumped on and pillows that are thrown, that's why they call them throw pillows, right? Uh, Pillows that are thrown and, uh, you know, um, piles of laundry everywhere and you're just running 100 miles an hour. I get it. But can I encourage you in one area? Have at least your living room kept clean all the time. There needs to be that one room in the house. Now, this isn't in the Bible, all right? So if you don't, you don't like this, take it, you can take it or leave it, but I think, I think this is really good advice. You have that one room in the house that the children know is always clean. And if they need a place to go to, to sit and just take a deep breath, they know there's that one room. Hey, look, it might be that there's not a bed in the house made. And I think you should teach your children to make their beds that's the first thing my kids do when they get up every morning. It's the first thing that's done in our house. But it may be that the beds aren't made and that the bedrooms are dirty, but they know they can go in the living room, and that's going to be straightened, and that's trained and taught. Our routines, letter C, notice their refuge. Their refuge. What makes God so attractive? Well, well, everything, right? Everything. But one aspect I love is that he is always the same. Always the same. Hebrews thirteen eight. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. I, look, I my life can get chaotic sometime, and I know that I can run to the Lord, and His consistency and orderliness will, will it will protect me. That's why it's a rock I can put my feet on. What makes punishment so effective? The, here, here's why. Because the natural order of your home has been broken. Here we are flying along in the Lejeune house. Boy, everybody's getting along. It's happy. Everything's great. And all of a sudden, one of the kids hits a road bump. And now, all of a sudden, they've disobeyed or they've lied or there's been a bad attitude. And now, the natural order, the natural flow of the home has been broken. But also, the natural order of the relationship between dad and son, dad, mom, and son uh, is broken. And now, they're off in their room getting ready to get punished. And here we 
we had order, 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 disorder, order, 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 disorder. And they want to get back into the flow of the order. And so after the punishments distributed and they come back into the order and the flow of the home, everything's going great. That's why you've got to work to establish that 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 routine. That's why you've got to learn to establish what the roles are, because that gets order in the home that gets peace in the home. And then when the children step out of that, boy, they want to come back. How does that apply to your adult children? If you can raise them from the time they're a little ones all the way to the time they're 18 in a home that's orderly and happy, they may venture off into sin somewhere. But what they're going to find is disorder and chaos and confusion. And they're going to want to come back into that flow, into that stream of order. That's why it's so important you begin to establish that now. It provides a refuge. When we establish order, there is that sense of security and safety that embodies the home, that embraces those that live inside the home. Number three, notice, we must eye the target. Go back with me to Psalm 127 and look at verse number four. We must eye the target. Can we read that one out loud together as well? Here we go. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Oh, I caught a bunch of you. You'd close your Bibles. That wasn't a lot of participation. So either you were sleeping or your Bibles are closed. Can everybody turn over to Psalm 127.4? All right, let's read it out loud. Let's be enthusiastic about it. Ready? As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. So the picture here is that you've got a mighty man or you've got a warrior type guy and he's got a quiver full of arrows and he's got a bow and he's got his eye on a target a long way off in the distance and he draws out the arrow and he puts it in the bow. He he pulls back, he takes steady aim and off it goes to hit the target. Now, in that parallel there, your children are the arrows and your parenting, uh, you, you as the dad or the mom is the warrior, the mighty man or mighty woman. And when you let go of the arrow, that is when they hit adulthood and you fire them off in the world. Right. So what is this teaching us? Well, letter A, it's teaching us that we need to have long term goals, long term goals. Let me give you three. These won't be on the screen. And I'm just going to give them to you real quick. We'll move on to letter B uh, uh, real quick. Here they are. Uh, uh, long term goals, their identity in Christ. Their identity in Christ, that is so key, long-term goal. Uh, Their identification of a spouse, all the teenagers said, amen, I can't wait to get married. The third one is their choice of career, their choice of career. So their identity in Christ, their identification of a spouse, their choice of career. Let her be noticed, short-term goals. Now, how are we going to achieve the long-term goals? Well, anybody that's ever drawn up a business model knows that you figure out what the end game is and then you work backwards, right? That's a smart way to draw up a business model. So if I want my children to turn out being a a man and a woman that loves God, right, respectively, then I've got to figure out what I want them to be and then I've got to back up and come up with a plan that each day is going to help them achieve that, all right? Underneath their identity in Christ, let me just list for you several here, uh, their identity in Christ, if, if, if a short-term goal, okay? Uh, uh, the very first one is their salvation, their salvation. Um, I've got more to throw out than I have time, so I've got to pick and choose here. But when it comes to salvation, don't 
force your child through a prayer. Let them come to you. And don't have them pray till they're able to pray on their own. That way they know that what they did, they understood it. I can't tell you how many kids at camp get saved at 12 and 13 and 14 years old because they just prayed a prayer when they were four. Four always seems to be the number two. And they don't, they didn't really know what they did. Don't force your, don't, don't, even if your child comes to you and says, oh, I want to go to heaven. Make sure they pray on their own. Make sure they're able to understand the concept well enough to pray on their own. And then have them pray. Uh, here's another one for their identity in Christ. Bible reading. Bible reading. Another one is prayer. I'll give those together. Bible reading and prayer. Uh, if you can get your children in the habit of reading their Bible and praying every day, oh my, you are setting them up. Now, they need to do it and enjoy it. And you need to get creative in how you do that to enjoy it. Incentivize it. Reward them for it. Uh, but get them in the habit of reading their Bible and praying. Here's another one. This is a big one. Faithfulness to, uh, faithfulness to church. Faithfulness to church. If they're going to have an identity in Christ, then they need to be, have, uh, uh, they need to know their way around the church house. The church house, the idea of the church is not Pastor Lejeune's idea, it's Christ's idea. And then the last one here I put down is engaging others with the gospel. It's a lot easier for your children to be saved if you're saved. It's a lot easier for your children to read their Bible and pray if they see you reading your Bible and pray, Mom and Dad. It's a lot easier for them to be faithful to church if you are, because then you're taking them. Let me just also throw this out here. Don't give your teenagers a choice about church. Not a good idea. They may hate it, but I'm going to tell you, in their 30s and 40s, it will help them come back to it. And so bring your teenagers to church. If they're living under your roof, you ought to just have a rule for going to church. And then engaging others. It's a lot easier for your children to engage others if they see you engaging others with the gospel. All right, how about their identification of a spouse? I can't tell you how many Christian kids I've seen grow up and marry someone who isn't a Christian or a Christian in name only. And I step back and say, well, what happened with the, the parental rearing? Let me give you some thoughts here. The identification of a spouse. We must show them from the Bible. What kind of spouse they're looking for? Show them from the Bible. I gotta say, I gotta tell you, I have more respect. Please listen to what I'm about to say here. I have more respect for a Christian boy and girl in their 30s and 40s who never got married than I do for someone who settles and marries someone who isn't a Christian. You are better off staying single and in the will of God. And being uh, espoused to the Lord, if you will, being faithful to Him, then you are marrying some loser that's not going to treat you right. Living a life of pain. And I respect those young people uh, uh, that are in that boat. And there are a lot of them in our Christian churches. And to that I say, thank you, thank you, thank you for showing my children that they don't have to compromise just to get married. The next one I put down here is we must show them uh, by how we live. The identification of a spouse. Uh, uh, and that just comes back to having a solid marriage. And I would refer you to some other messages I've preached and some other items out there you can gather to, to have a good marriage. Here's another one. We must teach them how to study people. We must teach them how to study people. When I'm out with my kids, if I see something in someone I don't want them to be associated with or attached to, I'll point it out. Say, oh, you're being judgmental. No, I'm training my children training my children. Now, if someone's got a tattoo on their forearm, I'm not saying that's a wicked sinner. 
right? There's a difference. But if the guy in the car next to me has the bass turned up so loud that it's jarring the fillings out of my mouth, you don't want to marry a guy like that, April. That's not the kind of girl you want to hang with one day, Matthew. Right? So we're, we're identifying. We're helping them to be able to form and, and, and have a sense of judgment, at least a judgment call inside of them about how to associate and affiliate with people that one day they would consider as a life mate. Here's, a, here's maybe uh, the most important one. We must pray with them for their future spouse. We must pray with them for their future spouse. Let me give you three things to pray for uh, when you pray with your child about their future spouse. Pray for purity, pray for protection, and pray for salvation. Purity, protection, salvation. Angel and I were dating at, at college. We're sitting out by the uh, lake there at Hiles Anderson. And I told Angela, I said, when I was... About 10, my mother started having me pray for my future spouse. My mother would say to me, she'd say, you may already know who your wife, you may already know the person that's going to become your wife, or they may be on the other side of the world. Angela was in Peru. I'd call that the other side of the world. She'd say, Richard, when you pray for her, I want you to pray that God will save her if she's not saved. God will protect her and keep her pure. I began to pray those things as a 10-year-old boy, and I prayed those all the way through my teen years. I shared that with Angela while we were either, we may have been engaged, if not at least dating seriously. I looked over and Angela began to cry, and I said to her, what's wrong? She said, you know I didn't grow up in a Christian home. She said, I had friends in high school that were not very well behaved. And she said, I put myself in some pretty bad situations where I could have been taken advantage of and no one would have known. She named for me a particular situation where it would have been natural in that given circumstance for her to not be pure anymore, for her to have been taken advantage of. And she said, I have looked back on that and wondered why that didn't happen. And she said, now I know that you are praying angels around me. You having your children pray for their future spouse? It may be God has your child be single. He calls some people that to, to that. But chances are he'll call them to be married. Are you praying with them for their future spouse, for that purity, that protection, that salvation? And I finish with this. Their career of uh, their choice of career. Let me share this with you. And I'll give you the last point. Their choice of career. Um, really quick, we must teach them to work. We must teach them to work. Um, Fifty, sixty years ago, uh, uh, even going back even further than that, uh, uh, you woke up and the very first thing you did was morning chores. How many grew up with morning chores? You see your hand. All right. Uh, the median age is is higher than my age. I'll just say that. All right. Um, today, parents don't give their children chores anymore. Give your children some chores. Have them clean the bathroom. Your child, by the time they leave home, ought to know how to scrub a toilet, clean a sink, 
Windex the mirror, clean out the bathtub, sweep the floor, wash the dishes. If they're a boy, they ought to know how to go out and cut the lawn and turn a screwdriver and change the oil. Get your boys involved. Get your girls involved. Get them involved in chores. You're going to set them up to be successful in a career. Then you've got to teach those children how to work. We must help cultivate. Here's another one. We must help cultivate their interests. If your child comes to you and they're interested in something, and I'm talking about preteen to teen years especially, they come to you and they're interested in a field, boy, help them do that. Yeah, It may not be something you're interested in, but it could be that God is beginning to prepare their heart to go out and be a doctor or a lawyer or a nurse or, or, or whatever it might be, whatever the calling might be, an architect or maybe a preacher or a missionary. Who knows what it is, but they come to you and they have an interest. Don't, don't squelch that. Don't stop that. Boy, get them books to read on the topic and help cultivate those interests in them. Them so that you can help them with their choice of a career. And the last one I put down here is we must teach them to seek God's kingdom first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Hey, listen, if God wants you to be a doctor, then I want you to be a doctor. If God wants you to, to, uh, uh, to be a scientist, I want you to be a scientist. But we're going to seek God's kingdom first. We're going to seek God's kingdom first. It may be that God wants you to be a preacher. If that's what God wants, then I want you to be a preacher. But we want you to seek God's kingdom first. Their choice of career. By the way, I want to go back and just say this. If you're having your child pray that God protects the purity of their future spouse, what kind of a message are you sending that child about purity? It's going to encourage your child to be pure to the wedding altar. Number four, and lastly, we must seek spiritual help. We must seek spiritual help. Really quick, letter A, B, and C. Read. Letter A is read. That would be read the Bible. That is the authority on the home. But then read other Christian books. Here's some books that I have read in full that I highly recommend. This is just a short list. I've read many more. But Love and Respect, You and Me Forever, Making Wise the Simple, Personality, a Positive Personality Profile, The Five Love Languages of Children, The Five Love Languages, Bringing Up Boys, The Strong-Willed Child, Making Home Work, and Are We There Yet? Those are some books I've read. I can, I can show you the list uh, after church if you want. But uh, listen, read. Read, read, read. Readers are leaders, or rather leaders are readers. And so uh, read the Bible, study what it says, uh, read books that articulate the Bible on these topics, and, and do your best to stay on top of your game when it comes to parenting. Letter B, pray. Pray. Do you pray for your children? Do you pray for the discipline process? Do you pray for their behavior? Do you pray for their future spouse? Do you pray for their purity to remain intact and be protected? If we are praying for these things regularly, not only do we employ heaven on our behalf, but we also keep these things in the forefront of our minds. It has a lasting effect on what we expose our children to and how that plays into their future. So pray, pray, pray for your children. Let her see counsel. Counsel, lastly. By that I mean seek out godly counsel. Now, let me tell you how you can do that. You can do that without having to come and sit down in my office or go talk to other people. Uh, you can do that by either going to the Sweetheart Couples class or the Family Foundations class every week. If you've got children or teenagers, you need to be in one of these two classes. 
You need to be faithful to one of these two classes. You need to be there every week because there could be some tidbit thrown out by Brother Owens or uh, in the material that I prepare that that could really help you to have that edge in parenting. And uh, uh, some of you here, it wouldn't be bad for you to sit down with a spiritual adult that is either being successful or is or is a successful parent and get advice from them. Even if your kids aren't uh, 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 ill behaved or 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 or, or bad, bad mannered, sit down with them and get uh, uh Advice about how you can be proactive to be better. Proverbs eleven fourteen says, where no counselor is, the people fall. Boy, I don't want that people to be my kids. Where no counsel is, the, the children fall or the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Surround yourself with good counselors. How about it tonight? Are we parenting away in a way that pleases the Lord? I hope there's something said tonight that helps sharpen your parental or grandparental tools. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed tonight. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to understand the message and to take the things that maybe uh, could be better in our hearts and lives and to do them better. Lord, there's some areas in here putting this message together that you pointed out to me that, that I need to improve on. And so, Lord, would you help me with those things and help us, Lord, to rear a generation of children that love you. Help us with these things, Lord, in your name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet with our heads bowed and eyes closed. The altar's open. If you're here with a child, it wouldn't be a bad idea for you to come and kneel at the altar with your children and ask God to help you to raise them the right way. Maybe with a spouse, you come and kneel with your spouse. If you've, you've got grandkids, it wouldn't be a bad idea for you to ask the Lord right now to help you be a better grandparent.